Section 18 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bo Wood. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh Mysterious Disappearances Part 8 The Capture of a Shrewd Trickster In cases of mysterious disappearance, where claims have been brought to recover under life or accident insurance policies, the evidence was at first almost wholly of a circumstantial nature, such as the finding of the hat or coat of a missing man in places or under conditions that would lead to a presumption of death by accident. Fraudulent claims arising from such cases became so numerous that the accident companies sought to protect themselves by specifically providing in their policies that this insurance does not cover disappearance. Therefore, to establish a valid claim, it now becomes necessary to identify the dead body of the insured or to furnish credible eyewitnesses to an alleged accident. The substitution of a body in a fraudulent case is attended with no little risk of detection, while arranging for eyewitnesses to a pretended accident almost necessarily means conspiracy and its attendant dangers. Each of these schemes is occasionally practiced Disappearance claims are much less frequent than formerly, probably because of the increased hazard incurred through the necessity of having more than one interested person in the plot. It is, of course, possible that a trick may be so adroitly planned and be carried out with such masterly ability that even the eyewitnesses themselves may be deceived and thereby led to give their aid and cooperation in an attempt to defraud. In a case whose details are as follows, eyewitnesses to the drowning of Joel Piper attempt to explain their innocence on the grounds of such deception and Piper himself endorses their explanations, thereby appropriating to himself all the cunning, all the skill, and all the glory belonging to his fraudulent venture. Joel is therefore undoubtedly the hero of this tale, and it is proper that he should be presented to the reader as such. At the time of which we write, in the fall of 1880, he was a resident of Quincy, Illinois, called himself a farmer, 50 years of age, was married, 
and, so far as known, enjoyed a somewhat unenviable reputation. A few months previous, he had been indicted for burglary and was out on bail, his bondsman expecting him to appear at the November term of court. In this matter of burglary, Joel had a Powell, or confederate in crime, named Scott, who also was indicted, but being obliged to stand trial, was convicted and duly sentenced to the penitentiary. Shortly before the time when Piper would have to appear for trial, that is to say on October 9, 1880, he obtained two insurance policies written by Travelers Insurance Company of Hartford, Connecticut, in the total sum of $4,000 upon his valuable life, procuring them through an agent to whom he was a stranger. The policies were made payable to his wife in the event of his death by accident. Notice of the untimely drowning of the insured soon followed. The alleged widow presenting sworn statements as follows. First, her personal affidavit that said, Joel Piper, in company with Thomas H. Bryant and James H. Bryant, did, on the morning of October 31, 1880, start from his house in Quincy, Illinois, with the intention of crossing the Mississippi River into Missouri for the purpose of gathering nuts and persimmons and has never returned. Piper's two companions, whose names Mrs. Piper mentions, were her own brothers. Their affidavit in support of her claim under the insurance policies is as follows. They were with, said Joel Piper, in a small boat or skiff on the Mississippi River about eight miles south of Quincy, Illinois, on the Missouri side, October 31, 1880. At said time, we saw said Piper fall out of said skiff into the river and that he rose to the surface of the water but once afterward, and then about 30 feet below or down the river from the boat, and that they used every means in their power to rescue and save said Piper from drowning, but without effect. And further, that they believe and are fully satisfied said Joel Piper was drowned at that time and place, although his body has not as yet been found and identified. Said Piper had on, at the time of said accident, a very heavy overcoat buttoned up close to the throat, which said affiance believe had a tendency to hold the body underwater. These two eyewitnesses, who were brothers-in-law of Piper, a few days after the occurrence, were able to show satisfactorily to the court why and wherefore 
Piper could not appear in answer to the indictment for burglary, and the forfeiture of bail by his bondsman was accordingly set aside. The two Bryants were on the bond. Public opinion seemed to be divided upon the credibility of the drowning story as related by the Bryants. The affiants were young men of good reputation for veracity, and those who knew them personally felt confident that they were incapable of being parties to a conspiracy to defraud. Mrs. Piper employed as her counsel one of the leading lawyers of Quincy, and he informed the representative of the insurance company that he had fully satisfied himself of the honesty of his client's cause before he consented to advocate it. He further wrote, I took great pains to inquire fully about the facts. I am aware of the occasional attempts to defraud in matters of this sort. I am satisfied, however, that this is not one of them. Whilst I feel certain as to this, I also feel that it is proper the company should have ample time to become fully satisfied before paying the insurance. On the other hand, there were not a few who expressed their belief that such a combination of circumstances, that is, of indictment for burglary, of obtaining bail, of the near approach of trial, of the insurance, of the accident, and of the relationship of the dramatis persona, clearly indicated trickery and fraud. It appeared to be a general opinion that if Piper was not actually drowned as alleged, it must be because he had been landed dry-shod from the boat upon the Missouri shore and was then in hiding. A year elapsed, and October 1881 arrived without any material disclosures touching the missing man. True, the local newspapers had published a rumor in August previous that Piper had been seen in St. Louis alive and well, but added that the story is not credible and the evidence is entirely too slight to allow belief that Piper is alive. No effort to find him had been made, and the insurance company realized that it now was necessary to pay the claim or satisfy the courts that it should not. It was decided that a search should be instituted with a view to ascertain something conclusive, one way or the other. The first move was to obtain reliable and thorough information as to Piper's habits, mode of life, and general surroundings. As a result, a more negative character would be hard to find. He seemed to have lived pretty much to himself, but with few associates and no intimates. It was some days before anyone could be found outside of his wife's family who really knew him personally. 
Finally, one, Brown, was got hold of, a sort of a river habitué, who knew Joel Piper and more about him and his antecedents than did anyone previously seen. According to Brown's account, Piper, who had stated in his insurance application that he was a farmer, had not been on a farm for years, but was by turns a boat carpenter, fisherman, and swamp hunter. Becoming satisfied as to Brown's reliability and fidelity, he was employed to enter upon a prolonged search. The trail was an old one, and it had become cold, but the amateur detective started down the river, making only brief stops until he reached St. Louis. He remained a few days in and near that city and satisfied himself that Piper had been there about a year previous or very soon after the drowning. Getting no further trace, Brown then went to Cairo, Illinois, and there took a skiff and ransacked the river landings and islands as far down as Fort Pillow. At one of the islands, 40 or 50 miles below Cairo, he first struck the trail. Piper had been there some months before. Nothing further was learned, however, until he reached Fort Pillow. Brown knew that Piper had a relative some miles from this place, so he then abandoned the river and went into the country. It required several days tramping, often retracing his steps, before he successfully located the relative. But when it was accomplished, he had the satisfaction of learning from the neighbors that Piper was then at this relative's house. Brown then went to Ripley, Tennessee, the nearest point where he could communicate with the insurance company and reported the situation. The next thing to be done was to obtain Piper's arrest. Brown, in the meantime, being quietly on guard, but wholly unknown to Piper. A complaint was duly made, charging Piper, his wife, and his brothers-in-law with conspiracy to defraud, and a copy of the complaint was forwarded to a lawyer in Ripley to whom Brown was ordered to report in person. The arrest was made December 3, 1881 and was so well planned and suddenly executed that Piper made no resistance. On receipt of telegrams announcing the arrest, a requisition was obtained, and the Quincy, chief of police, was sent as messenger. He returned at once to Quincy with his prisoner, who was lodged in jail. So quietly was this done, that the other participants in the affair, Mrs. Piper and her two brothers, were taken completely by surprise. Piper was duly arraigned for a hearing, and his story was substantially as follows. 
while out on bail to appear in the burglary case of the year previous, he devised the scheme to get his life insured, disappear under such circumstances as to leave a presumption of his death, and thereby escape the law, provide for his wife, and release his bondsman all at the same time. Accordingly, after effecting the insurance, he induced his brothers-in-law to go with him down the river in a skiff after persimmons and nuts. They spent most of the afternoon in the woods and shortly before sunset started for home. Having selected beforehand the place in the river, he, under pretext of changing seats with one of the Bryants, purposely fell out of the skiff and swam underwater to a drift pile about 100 yards from where he went overboard. He lay concealed amongst the brush and logs with his body in the water till after the search by his brothers-in-law had ended. Then, leaving his hiding place, he made for the shore and went to St. Louis and thence to Fort Pillow, Tennessee. He swore that his wife and her brothers knew nothing of the scheme and that he took the two Bryants along in the boat in order that they might be good witnesses of his death at the time of the pretended drowning. On cross-examination, he admitted that on arriving in St. Louis, he met the father of the two Bryants and of his wife. He asserted that he did not tell his father-in-law about the circumstances under which he left home and that he did not request him to refrain from mentioning, by letter or otherwise, the fact of his being very much alive. This father-in-law Bryant accompanied him to Fort Pillow and worked with him there or in the immediate vicinity until the following May, when he, Bryant, returned to Quincy. Mrs. Piper, the ex-widow, testified that her father came to Quincy in May 1881 and remained until sometime in August following, and that he had never given her any information that her husband was living. Of course, she never had the slightest doubt of her husband's death until she saw him in jail. How much truth or falsehood went to make up the story which Piper told was of little consequence to the insurance company. Its interest in him ceased when it had restored him to the bosom of his afflicted family. The Capture of Fraker In the summer of 1893, Dr. George W. Fraker was physician to the St. Elmo Hotel, the leading hotel in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, a health resort near Kansas City. Together with several companions, the doctor went fishing in the Missouri River one day in July, and after dark, while in the company of George Harry, 
James Triplett, and Jake Crowley, a Negro. He disappeared and was seen no more. These three persons swore positively that they heard a splash and immediately afterward saw Fraker waist-deep in the water, he having fallen down a bank into the river. At the place of the alleged accident, there is a violent current or eddy in the river where logs or stumps being drawn in would be swirled around as in a maelstrom. And it seemed impossible that a man falling in there could escape with his life. The next Sunday, after the reported drowning, a memorial service was held at the Springs, a great crowd being present. The funeral oration extolled the virtues of the doctor. The music was charming, and the flowers were in profusion. Some who were present regarded the funeral as a mockery, but it was generally believed that the turbid waters of the Missouri had closed over the doctor's lifeless body. Three or four months previous to this occurrence, Dr. Fraker began to load up with life insurance, taking $10,000 in the Kansas Mutual Life of Topeka, $15,000 in the Hartford Life and Annuity, $15,000 in the Provident Savings of New York, $10,000 in the Equitable Life of New York, and $8,000 in Benevolent Societies, a total of $58,000. Immediately after his disappearance, the insurance companies held a conference and discovered that while the doctor's income was only about $1,800 a year, his premiums amounted to more than $1,000 annually. Besides this, George Harry and James Triplett, who swore to having witnessed Fraker's death, were men of bad character. Harry, having been arrested in eastern Missouri on a charge of burglary in New Mexico. Before going on his fishing excursion, Fraker had drawn all his money from the bank, saying he was about to start for California to bring home the orphan children of his deceased uncle. $40,000 of the insurance money was payable to his brother-in-law in trust for the children. Dr. Fraker, who had practiced medicine for eight years, was a great fraternity man and was an active leader in Sunday school work, but held rather peculiar views on religious subjects. After a thorough investigation, all the companies, except the equitable, refused to pay the claims. Whereupon, James E. Lincoln, the executor of the will, brought suit in the district court at Liberty, Missouri, which was afterward transferred to the United States Circuit Court at Kansas City. Robert T. Herrick, an attorney of Topeka, was appointed to conduct the case for the companies jointly, 
and was assisted by eminent legal talent. In December 1894, after a sensational trial lasting two weeks, the case went to the jury after the court had given it instructions, which inclined very favorably in the direction of the plaintiff, as will appear by the following quotation. As men do not ordinarily engage in such a conspiracy or undertaking without some underlying motive or incentive, the question, naturally enough, suggests itself to an honest mind where is to be found in this evidence any satisfactory motive or inducement for these men to come into court and commit perjury to enable Dr. Fraker to accomplish such a stupendous fraud. It may be that the mind can conceive, and there may be in actual history incidents of men of so depraved motives or so bound by the mastery of attachment to a friend that without money or hope of reward they would sacrifice truth and their oaths to advance the wicked course of another. The jury was out only 20 minutes and returned a verdict against the insurance companies. An application was made for a new trial, but in February, the insurance companies agreed with the Fraker heirs that unless the body of Fraker was found within six months, the money would be paid. The six months expired August 12th, and in the meantime, the companies ran down several false clues and, failing to find the doctor, paid over to the executor the several judgments and at the same time withdrew their offer of $20,000 for the arrest of Fraker. Herrick, who deserves to rank with the best detectives of modern times, obtained a clue in the latter part of 1894, which he patiently followed until sometime in August, when he learned the hiding place and assumed name of the doctor. On the 29th, he arrived in Tower, Minnesota, together with John Wilkinson, chief of police of Topeka, to assist in taking Fraker back. Herrick and Wilkinson learned that Dr. Fraker went by the name of Schnell and lived with a young man in a woodman's hut 50 miles from Tower on the Itasca County Road. A warrant was secured in Tower, and on Sunday morning, September 1st, accompanied by Deputy Sheriff Phillip and a guide, they started for the place. Before they had gone far, the guide told them that Schnell had recently moved to a shanty only 13 miles from Tower. Their course was then changed, and about 12 miles from Tower, Philip, who was acquainted with Fraker, under his alias as Schnell, saw Fraker's companion in a shanty near the wood, 
and on inquiring where the doctor was, learned that he had just moved to this place and was out hunting. The young man was placed under guard, and about two miles further on, Dr. Fraker, with a gun on his shoulder, was found. Herrick engaged him in conversation, when suddenly Philip seized his arms and Wilkinson put on the handcuffs. Fraker thought he had been arrested for killing game out of season, as Philip was also game warden. When the warrant was read to him, he was thunderstruck, but admitted his identity at once. He was brought to tower together with his companion. Fraker readily agreed to accompany the officers to Missouri without waiting for extradition papers. He stated that he had expected his relatives to get a portion of the insurance money and himself some also. He had been greatly benefited, he said, by the waters of a spring where he was staying. Fraker's hiding place was only a day's travel from the Canadian boundary. He had been there about six months, coming into town occasionally for mail and provisions. His supply of money was quite low, and he evidently expected some shortly. He said that at the time of the drowning fake, he went directly to Kansas City, shaved off his beard, and after three or four days, went to Chicago, thence to Milwaukee, where he assumed the name of William Schnell, and where he stayed most of the fall of 1893. He then went from one place to another, until he finally reached the wilds of northern Minnesota, where he was living, with only a boy for his companion at the time of his capture. He expressed a relief in being captured, saying, I have wanted a thousand times to come back, but the disgrace and what people were saying about me kept me from doing so. This living death is horrible, and I am glad now I am going back. As his executor had not yet distributed the money, Mr. Herrick, telegraphed to Kansas City to have suit instituted against him at once to recover it. A reversal of the decree of the United States Circuit Court followed on the 6th of November. By agreement of all concerned, a decree was entered by Judge Phillips, whereby the insurance companies, which paid nearly $50,000, to the heirs of Dr. George W. Fraker, were to recover all the money, except about 4000 which had been spent by the executor of the will in administering on the estate of Dr. Fraker and in prosecuting suits against the insurance companies. The parties to the agreement were the attorneys for the insurance companies, and Judge James E. Lincoln, executor of the will of Dr. Fraker. The total amount recovered by all the companies was $36,557.04. But this was not all in cash, 
and it is uncertain yet what it will net the companies. The Equitable made a compromise settlement before trial for $8,500. The new decree provided that the judgment rendered by the court February 12, 1895, ordering the insurance companies to pay the money to Lincoln as the executor of the will of Dr. Fraker, be set aside, vacated, and annulled, and the plaintiffs and respondents, meaning the executor and the beneficiaries of the will of Dr. Fraker, be perpetually enjoined and restrained from further proceedings in the cases against the insurance companies. Of course, the agreement between the companies and the executor and the decree of the court could have no effect on the prosecution of Fraker for attempting to defraud the insurance companies by pretending to be dead so that his heirs would get the money. End of section 18.